Blog Talk Radio. Hello out there. My name is Sam Maxwell, and welcome to the first Bedford and Sullivan podcast. I'm a screenwriter and baseball connoisseur, and for a while now I've had an idea to do a premium cable TV series about Brooklyn and its Dodgers and how both were affected by the rapid transition into modern America. Um, the, 20 year, uh, the 20 years I want to focus on in the series, 1937 to 1957, I find to be the most important time period as to who we became as a country in the latter part of the 20th century and who we are today. And it can all be told from one corner of the world, and that's Bedford Avenue and Sullivan Place in Brooklyn, USA. It's very early on in the development of the series, but I figured I'd have the audience be active listeners in the research process. Joining us later on will be one of the biggest Dodger fans around, legendary broadcaster Larry King. But first, I welcome the official Brooklyn Borough historian to the program, Mr. Ron Schweiger. Ron, thank you for getting us started. Okay, my pleasure. Absolutely. Well, let's uh, get right into it. Tell us the best story you have regarding the Dodgers in Brooklyn. Well, um, one very brief one, and then I'll tell you a, a very amusing one. The first time I ever went to Ebbets Field was with my father in 1952 when I was seven years old. And uh, he had box seats right behind home plate, behind the netting, maybe seven or eight rows behind the netting. And as we walked into the ballpark, I'm holding his hand. We're walking up the ramp, and since they're field-level seats, um, you know, it was a short walk. When I got to the top of the ramp, my first glimpse of the field, I stopped short. And my father, holding my hand, said, what's the matter? And I pointed to the field, and I said, the grass is green. He goes, what are you talking about? I said, on television, it's black and white. It was the greenest grass I ever saw, Sam. That was my first experience with Ebbets Field. Oh, that's beautiful. Now, I'm guessing a lot of kids had that experience at the time. Yes, I've spoken with several Brooklyn Dodger fans who had very similar experiences. And the uh, very beautiful. The amusing story, um, um, let's see, this probably takes place in the 1940s. Um, This gentleman, I'll use that in quotes and unquotes, um, he gets up from his seat and uh, he kind of weasels his way through the row towards the aisle. Perhaps he wants to get a hot dog and a beer or something. And he's walking through and he gets to the last person and he is a young lady, and he steps on her foot, and she lets out a scream, and he just keeps on going. Maybe 10, 12 minutes later, he comes back. He's coming down the steps. He stops. He's holding a beer and a hot dog. He comes down another step. He's looking around, comes down another step. He keeps looking, and then he stops, uh, spots the young lady. He comes down to the step where she's sitting and says, Young lady, did I step on your foot a little while ago? She goes, you most certainly did. He goes, good, this is the right row. (laughs) (laughs) I guess you might say that's typical Brooklyn Ebbetsfield story. (laughs) Perfect, perfect. I'll have to use something like that in the writing. Uh, So where did you live uh, in vicinity to Ebbetsfield? Well, I lived in the the neighborhood known as Gravesend, which had nothing to do with a grave. Um, I lived on Avenue S between East 7th and East, East 8th Street. A block off of Ocean Parkway. And how long would it take you to, let's say, walk to the place? Uh, well, we wouldn't walk to Ebbetsfield. It was too long of a walk. But we would walk to the King's Highway Station uh, by East 16th Street, uh, my brother and I. And um, 
we would get on the well, by then it was, back then it was known as the Brighton line, and my mother would always tell us if you get the local, it's nine stops to Prospect Park. If you get the express, it's three stops to Prospect Park. And when we got off at Prospect Park, you come up the steps from the uh, the subway uh, station, and because it was like 18 feet down below street level, you come up to the street level, and there's Flatbush Avenue. And all you had to do is follow the crowd. You had trolleys and everyone coming out of the subway. And as you took four or five steps, and there was your glimpse of Ebbets Field about two and a half blocks away on the corner of Bedford and Sullivan. Mm-hmm. So when they won in 1955, what, what was that like for you? And, and describe October 4th, 1955, from Ron, Ron Schweiger's perspective. <laughs> okay. Uh, I was 10 years old, and by that time I was a full-blooded Brooklyn Dodger fan, as my whole family were. Not just my immediate family, but my aunts, my uncles, my cousins. We all lived in Brooklyn, and uh, we were all big Brooklyn Dodger fans. And I was watching on TV. My older brother was around the corner on East 8th Street in his friend's house, and I was watching with my younger brother. He was uh, six. Uh, he was um, let's see. He was six at the time. I was 10. My mother was out shopping. And uh, we saw the final out made. We jumped for joy. And all of a sudden, we hear horns honking and people out in the street banging pots and pans together, screaming, the Dodgers win the World Series. And so we got an idea. We ran into the kitchen. We opened up some of the cabinets. We grabbed some pots and pans, ran out onto the sidewalk, and started banging the pots and pans with, you know, other people were doing it. And, yay, the Dodgers win the World Series. Finally, we beat the Yankees, you know. And uh, after a while, it simmered down, you know, and people went back inside to watch TV and see the the happenings afterwards. And uh, maybe about 40 minutes later, my mom comes home and smiling because she heard on the car radio that the Dodgers won the World Series. She proceeds to go into the kitchen and uh, puts the groceries away and starts to prepare dinner. And she opens up the cabinets, takes out some pots and pans, and all of a sudden she comes running into the... TV room, and uh, holding some pots and pans, and she says, what happened to my pots and pans? You see, Sam, they were all dented from the banging. (laughs) And we confessed what we did, and by the way, and she saw people on the street doing that as well. She Mm -hmm. hesitated for about 10 seconds and said, looking at the pots and pans in her hands, she goes, it's okay, the Dodgers won the World Series. (laughs) Exactly. That was was the feeling in Brooklyn. Everything, because everything's all right because the Dodgers everything's won. okay in the world. The Dodgers won the World Series. That was, and, uh, yeah, that was and, a great, quickly, great I mean, feeling. The honeymoon was pretty, pretty much over pretty quickly. Um, and yeah, you were, it was. You were you were twelve years old when the Dodgers left, and you know that's that's a, a a time when you're you're starting to form who you're going to be as a man in, in some ways, and, and that must have really devastated you as a 12-year-old. Oh, it, it was devastating. I mean, uh, it, you know, it was like a member of the family had passed away, um, and that's the feeling of many, many Brooklyn Dodger fans. Um, and, you know, initially we all blamed Walter O'Malley, uh, but as time went on, um, it really came out that it was Robert Moses, uh, the power broker, Robert Moses, who had more power than uh, Mayor Robert Wagner, mayor of New York City. And when O'Malley wanted to build a new ballpark, 
at Flappish and Atlantic Avenues, where the new Barclays Center is now for the new for the Brooklyn Nets. Um, uh, that he wanted it there because you have 11 subway lines, several bus lines, and the Long Island Railroad right there. And many Dodger fans, a lot of Brooklynites, um, had moved out to Long Island, um, and all they had to do was hop on the Long Island Railroad, take it to the last stop at Flappish and Atlantic Avenue, and there's the new ballpark, which, by the way, would have had a dome on it because O'Malley had a model with a dome. But Robert Moses said, I'll build you a new ballpark in Queens. And O'Malley said, the Brooklyn Dodgers are not going to play in Queens. And that was the end of it. Robert Wagner, the mayor, didn't open his mouth and say one word. We lost out. And California won. And I have not rooted for the Dodgers since then. I had nothing against the players, but uh, I can't root for a team that's 3,000 miles away. Of course. It seems as if... um more Giants fans stuck their allegiance uh, than Dodgers fans. Is, is, uh, is, would you say that, sub, that has something to do with the, the independence that Brooklyn felt? Um, yes. Brooklyn, remember, Brooklyn, way back when, was a separate city, uh, up until eight, January 1st, 1898. And uh, many of us, we say that was the mistake of 98. <laughs> and uh, we had the population. I mean, if we were a separate city right now, we would be probably the third or fourth largest city in the United States. We have about 2.6 million people just in Brooklyn right now. And um, it was just, and by the way, quite a few of the Dodger players lived in the neighborhoods here in Brooklyn. Mm -hmm. Um, Duke Snyder rented an apartment on Beverly Road and East 17th or East 18th Street for a short time, and then he moved to Bay Ridge, where Pee Wee Reese was living where Carl Erskine eventually moved. Um, and Carl Erskine, of course, lives in Indiana. That's where he's from originally. That's where he is right now. Um, but during the season, his home was in Brooklyn. Um, and Gail Hodges lived on Bedford Avenue. And all he had to do was go right down Bedford Avenue, uh, a short drive, uh, maybe a mile and a half, and there was Ebbets Field. In fact, mm-hmm. the street on Bedford Avenue between avenues um, L, M, and N is co-named Brooklyn Dodger, I'm sorry, uh, Gil Hodges Way. And the public hmm. school on the corner, on Avenue L and Bedford Avenue, that's public school 193, is called the Gil Hodges School. Because I believe his son, Gil Jr., went to that school. And it's right down the block where he lived. Um, so, and, and by the way, Gil's wife, Joan Hodges, just recently, last year, sold the house. So she was still living there up until last year. I'm not sure where she's living now. Hmm. So it's really who, something. Who was your Who was your favorite player back in the day? Without a doubt, it was Jackie Robinson. Um, he was my favorite player. Um, I met Jackie, I would say, maybe six or seven times, because um, behind the right field scoreboard uh, on Bedford Avenue, across the street was a mobile gas station, and several of the players parked their cars in the lot there at the gas station. So when the game the games were over, many of the kids came out of Ebbets Field, and they went to the parking lot, and we waited for the players to shower and change into street clothes, and they would come out, and they would sign autographs. We got to know whose car belonged to who. I know Roy Campanella had a 
uh, I believe, a gold Cadillac Eldorado convertible. Jackie Robinson had a big black Buick. And and I, I mentioned this to Rachel Robinson, Jackie's uh, widow. Um, and I said to her, I said, Jackie wouldn't leave until every kid either had his autograph or shook his hand. And she nodded and said, yes, Jackie didn't want to disappoint the children. And I never forgot that. Um, oh, I, I experienced that. And, well, and I was a teacher. I, I, yeah. yeah. And I no, invited ahead, Jackie's bro. daughter, Sharon Robinson, to come to the public school where I was teaching. And she came. And we had a wonderful experience with her. I'm glad to hear it. Ron, I thank you very, very much for joining us. And we will certainly talk again very, very soon. Okay, Sam. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Take care. You too. Bye now. And with that, let's bring on the legendary talk show host who is still going strong at Aura.tv backslash Larry King now. Mr. Larry King. Larry, thank you for joining me. My pleasure, Sam. Happy to be with you. Anytime you talk about Brooklyn, I'm there. Well, perfect. Then let's get right to it. Share what you consider your best story regarding the Dodgers in Brooklyn. Oh, I've got so many. Uh, probably the best uh, was attending Jackie Robinson's first game. I sat up in the bleachers. I just recently saw the movie 42, which is a great film. And I was up there in like the third row of the bleachers, me and a bunch of friends on that April day in 1947 when Jackie came on to the roster from uh, the Montreal Royals. And we saw him play first base. And we saw that dark black man in that, that unbelievably white uniform take the field. Uh, it was not a, a sold-out game. It was, about, I think, about 27,000. And we just knew history was being made. Growing up in Brooklyn, we never understood why there were no blacks in baseball. It didn't make sense to us. So when Robinson joined, that was a particular thrill. And as a side note, later in life, when I got into broadcasting, I would interview Robinson twice on two occasions. Uh, once uh, in 1960, and then later on, uh, right shortly before his death, he was ongoing blind. He was a great interview and a great subject. So that would be certainly a highlight, but... Just going to Ebbets Field was a highlight. We were regulars at Ebbets Field. We were, uh, I kept a whole scrapbook of the 1947 season. Every day, the scores, the stories in the newspapers, we pasted them all out. That was an incredible year. Robinson was the first rookie of the year. Even though the Yankees won that World Series, the two most famous plays were conducted by Dodgers. Lavagetto broke up Bill Bevan's no-hitter in the ninth inning of the third game. And in the, uh, Sixth game, uh, a credible catch by Aljon Frito at Yankee Stadium against the left field wall over a ball hit by DiMaggio. I, I have vivid memories of Brooklyn and the Dodgers. So what was the, the first game that you ever went to? 1943. My father had died on June 9, 1943. I was nine and a half years old. My Uncle Bernie, who, by the way, was a bullpen catcher for the New York Yankees, he knew Babe Ruth and Gehrig and everybody, and he took me to my first game, which was about, I guess, late July, about a month and a half after my father passed away. That was a terrible blow to me, and my father got me interested in baseball. And I remember walking up the ramp. It was a beautiful day, warm but not humid. I was uh, nine years old, nine years, about seven months and uh, I remember walking up the ramp. I remember seeing how brown the dirt was and how green the grass was and how white the lines were. And, and uh, I remember we beat the Cincinnati Reds 4-3. to three. 
uh, I just I had it was such an incredible day to me and all I knew about baseball I knew from Red Barber who I got to work with later Red came down to Miami and we worked on the same television show together Red had a great influence on me he taught me baseball by listening to him on the radio and then going and seeing it in person is something you you just you never forget there was nothing like that ballpark and I still all the years later sitting in dugouts and going on road trips and spending so much time at baseball games, I still get a little bump every time I walk into a major league ballpark. So uh, Red Barber and Vince Kelly were certainly, uh, even though oh, he I, didn't get in. I remember Vin's first game. Well. I remember Vin was 21 years old. He came from Fordham. He did one inning. His first year was, I think, 1950. He did one inning a game. Uh, Red Barber had used him on a football broadcast. Uh, and he was very impressed with him, so he used him. And then Vin Red had left the Dodgers to broadcast Yankee games, and Vin went uh, west with the Dodgers. Uh, my radio influences were were many: were Arthur Godfrey, Red Barber, Scully, all those guys. Scully's a good friend of mine now; I see him almost every day. And because uh, I live in L.A. and I'm a season ticket holder with the Dodgers, and. Uh, so, yeah, they became part of my life. I thought I'd be a sports broadcaster, and I did broadcast Dolphin football, but, but I got into interviewing very early and stayed with that. Mm. Did you keep your Dodgers allegiance when they left Brooklyn, or was there a hiatus before you moved to Los Angeles? It was a semi-hiatus. Good question, Sam. I went down to Miami. I went down to Miami and broke in in 1957, and that was the last year of the Dodgers played in Brooklyn. They left at the end of that year, so I felt great. I had already been in Miami, so I felt great compassion for all the people in Brooklyn who were losing their team. I violently blamed O'Malley when later discovered it was not his fault, but it was Parks Commissioner Moses who turned him down. The Dodgers wanted to go where Barclays Center is now, and had they moved there, we wouldn't. there wouldn't have been, there'd be a team eventually in L.A., but it wouldn't have been the Dodgers, so when they moved west, I was in Miami. The Orioles trained there. I became an Oriole fan. I saw Ripken break in and all those, you know, new got friends with Brooks Robinson and Cal Ripken Jr. and all those guys. So I rooted for the Orioles and from afar hoped the Dodgers won, but didn't keep up with them daily and would root for the Orioles to play them in the World Series. And uh, so I, I still have an allegiance now to the Orioles. I moved to L.A., in 1997 with CNN and stayed there and been in LA now for 17 years. So I bought season tickets to the Dodgers, had two young kids born and they're now 14 and 11 and they play baseball every day. And my son's going to Notre Dame high school. He's going to play and uh, they go to mostly all the Dodger games. They know all the players on the team. They go to some giant games on the road. They've been to New York to play the Mets. So I'm ardently a Dodger fan, but I, I, I want to see the Orioles win the American League. Uh, I'd love to see, again, the Dodgers play the Orioles in the World Series. Mm-hmm. So I have a great def- – it's like reverse now. Now I'm a complete Dodger fan with great affection for the Orioles. Well, perfect. Uh, and, I, you know, obviously I'm a big Mets fan, but hopefully for you – you can see that uh, that happened in the World Series this year. Well, I know I'll you're beat the All Star game man. on the I'll beat the All Star game on the 16th, and I'm looking forward oh, to it. Freddie cool. Will Freddie Wilpon and I went to uh, high school together, as did oh, Sandy cool. Koufax. Koufax and I went to high school together, and uh, Frank Freddie Wilpon was a better pitcher than Sandy in high school. Freddie Freddie had a full scholarship to Michigan, and Sandy had a basketball scholarship to Cincinnati. Sandy was a better basketball player in high school. 
Oh, that's very interesting stuff. Um, and hopefully Matt Harvey is going to be on the mound when you're there at City Field on on uh, July 16th. I think they'll start him. Uh, I think that would be appropriate, even though uh, you know some other guys might make claim. I think it's his home ballpark. He's he'll be the only Met on the team. I think he certainly deserves to start. I'd love to see him start. I also think Puig should be on the team, even he though he's only fantastic. played. A, he's only played a month. The reason I think this, by the way, there are 30 players now on the team, and uh, the game is now played to win because the winning team. Uh, the league gets the home field advantage in the World Series, so the league wants a win. Plus, I think there should be every year, if a young man comes up a little late, like in May or June, and makes a big impression, like last year we had two of them, if that would happen, uh, they should be on the team. Just yeah. to provide the excitement. You, you can't tell me a national audience doesn't want to see Puig come in for an inning or two, because I'll tell you, I've been watching baseball, I'm 79 years old, and I've been watching baseball since I'm nine, so that's 70 years. And I've seen a lot of great players. I was at Willie Mays' first game uh, at the Polo Grounds. I uh, lived and died with Stan Musial, who was the best hitter I ever saw. <clears throat> I saw Jackie and Mickey Mantle in the Snyder era. I have never seen a kid like this kid. Uh, he is a five-tool player who is also extraordinarily exciting. Now, lots could happen. The league could catch up with him, and maybe he won't hit the curveball that he's hitting now or the changeup that he takes to right field, or maybe they'll get him out on that inside pitch that sometimes he bunts or drives down the left field line. If that happens and it fades, it'll fade. But I have never seen, and Vince Scully said this the other day, a more exciting young ball player than Puig. Well, that's very exciting. And hopefully uh, Bochi, who's going to be the manager of the All-Star game, will pick him for, for the game. Well, they're going to announce it Saturday. Be. I think he indicated he will not pick him. But they do have a vote, okay. right? There's a an extra player is picked by the fans. Yes. And Puig should be on that list. If he's on that list, uh, I'll bet you dollars to donuts the fans pick him. I will certainly be picking him. Even though it's only been 88 bats, it's been a very, very impressive 88 bats. You're not kidding. I know you're a very busy man, so I'll leave with this. Tell us about October 4th, 1955, from Larry King's perspective. Well, there are two October dates that live in my memory. One is October 3rd, 1951, which is the saddest day of my life, equal to my father's passing, when Bobby Thompson hit that home run. Uh, that broke my heart. I almost thought of suicide. That was just, I couldn't believe it. We were 13 and a half games ahead in August. We played good baseball. The Giants just never seemed to lose. And then we lost that incredible playoff game on that uh, pop fly home run by Bobby Thompson. I later, by the way, would introduce Thompson and Branca at a big dinner in New York, bring them up together to the podium and lean over to Thompson and say, I still hate you. <laughs> and then, of course, October 4, 1955, which was the grandest day when uh, Elston Howard hit the ground ball of Pee Wee Reese. Three up, three down. I, You know, we lost so many times to the Yankees that I thought we were doomed. Even though it was 2 nothing in the bottom of the ninth, I said, there it comes, it's over. They're going to hit a one ball, hit the, hit a pebble and bounce overhead, and there'll be fan interference that won't be called. And, you know, something's going to happen. And they went up so up and down so quick against Padres. You had a, yeah, I was listening on the radio. I couldn't afford to go to the game. And I just couldn't believe how quick it was. That inning was a minute and a half. 
I think it was a pop fly strikeout ground ball. It was just like simple one, two, three. And I talked to Yogi Berra many times about the ball he hit that Amaro's caught against the almost, that might have been a homer, uh, and then turned it into a double play. That changed the game around. I met Padres many times before he passed away, and Padres struck out 14 that game. He had a changeup that was unhittable. Uh, that was just a wondrous day. Uh, I can't tell you uh, what a thrill it is to have you join us, and, and uh, I hope to speak with you more about the Dodgers. I know you need to go, but uh, well, I very, no, very much you. appreciate it. Anytime you want to talk Brooklyn or the Dodgers, you just call me. I'll be a regular. Uh, perfect. Excellent. You I, got I, it, we, we will be in contact. Anytime. Thanks, Sam. I thank you, Larry. Well, that's our show. Join us next time, uh, and uh, more Dodger talk uh, coming up. Thank you very, very much. Take care, everybody.